Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So ransomware is a type of malware used by criminal organizations to gain unlawful access to computer networks and encrypt the data stored on those networks and render it unusable. So the criminal organization then holds the data hostage until a ransom payment is made. If the ransom is not paid, the victim organization's data will either remain encrypted and unusable, or it could be released to the public, potentially causing a great deal of damage and reputational harm. According to the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, between 2013 and 2019, at least 144.35 million in Bitcoin have been paid out as ransomware ransom. Cyber attacks like this year's attack on Colonial Pipeline are growing in frequency and cost. The frequency of attacks has increased dramatically over the last five years, with attackers holding information in computer networks hostage and extorting larger and larger ransom payments. This year in particular, critical infrastructure systems have been a popular target of hacker organizations. The attack on Colonial Pipeline showcased not only how ineffective cybersecurity can be, but it also served to illustrate the potential scale of disruption that can be caused when ransomware attacks target critical infrastructure. So joining us today are two experts in cybersecurity and ransomware attacks, Carlton Fields partner Jack Clabby and FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director Ron Yearwood. So Jack's practice focuses on corporate governance, fraud, and shareholder litigation, including the defense of securities fraud, class actions, and derivative lawsuits. Jack's a former assistant U.S. attorney and represents companies and special litigation committees in connection with internal corporate investigations. Jack is also a former cyber prosecutor who advises corporate boards and management on legal issues regarding cybersecurity and represents companies in litigation, including class actions, concerning breaches and data loss incidents. Jack also serves as a breach coach, guiding clients through the suspected loss of personally identified information, business interruption, or other system compromise. Jack began his career as an associate in the litigation firm Williams & Connolly in Washington, D.C. He currently leads the firm's securities and derivative litigation practice and is the firm's hiring chair. Jack is also the host of the popular podcast series, No Password Required. Ron Yearwood is the Senior Managing Director in the Cybersecurity Practice at FTI Consulting and is based in San Francisco, where he serves as the office lead for cybersecurity. Mr. Yearwood is an accomplished cybersecurity and law enforcement veteran whose expertise includes cybersecurity incident response, investigation, prevention, remediation, recovery, and neutralization. Ron has more than 30 years of experience combating the foremost criminal and national security threats, having spent more than 23 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He led strategic and investigative operations against hundreds of criminal and nation-state cyber threat actors. During his tenure in the FBI Cyber Division, he served as representative to the White House Cyber Response Group. Prior to joining FTI, Ron directed the FBI's premier network intrusion rapid incident response team, responsible for hundreds of successful operations, including advanced digital forensics, malware analysis, network intrusion investigations, and vulnerability exploit analysis. As a senior FBI cyber executive, Ron led national cyber response management during multiple high-profile cyber investigations, 
and operations receiving significant public and private scrutiny immediate attention. Ron also led highly decorated programs focused on cyber intelligence operations and development of innovative threat agnostic cyber tools. Ron joined the Bureau in 1995, working first in the Boston Division, conducting violent crime and cyber investigations. As a member of the inaugural Cyber Squad in Boston, his team provided the foundation for the thriving cyber component currently in existence today. And in 2000, as a program manager at FBI headquarters, his team broke new ground leading criminal and national security covert operations. In 2003, Ron led the Cyber Squad in FBI Houston prior to an assignment in the Counterterrorism Division in 2007. There, he led several hundred agents and analysts investigating thousands of terrorism cases, managing the most significant risk faced by the nation, resulting in dozens of arrests and plot disruptions in both the U.S. and across the globe. So welcome, Jack and Ron, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. You know, we've been getting a lot of questions at Carlson Fields about ransomware particularly since the Colonial Pipeline incident. So it's great to be here with you and get a chance to talk to the Fraud Each Strategy audience and hopefully get ahead of some of these issues before they, they affect even more companies. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here today and looking forward to the discussion on such a, a challenging and a pervasive issue that we're all presented with today in ransomware. Oh, yeah. Re really happy to have you guys both on. So in today's discussion, we're going to delve deeply into a specific ransomware incident, the attack on Norsk Hydro in March of 2019. But before we do so, for the benefit of our listeners who maybe aren't necessarily cybersecurity experts, Ron, can you explain the most common infection vectors that enable ransomware to gain a foothold in a computer network? Certainly. There are a number of different ways that potentially threat actors can gain access. When we talk about ransomware, there are some very common ways. Those are the things that I'll mention most. And the most common way is phishing. There are a couple of different ways that phishing has the potential to impact negatively to, to provide a threat actor access to. A comment on phishing. Phishing has become very, very sophisticated. Phishing emails that we see coming in are very believable. They're patterned after very realistic email engagements that potential victims have with third parties, with their clients, internal, internal to their own network. So they're very believable emails when they come across. When a phishing email comes across, if there is, and this is one of the more common ways, there's a link in that email and the user clicks on that link, they provide that now access point either via malware being downloaded onto the system or via a small piece of malware that then connects them out to a command and control center and then downloads more very malicious malware onto the, onto the system. And so that ransomware then starts to take its impact. Um, another way that email phishing is impactful if there's an attachment, somebody opens the attachment and it downloads malware onto that system. Another a very common way for malware to get on a network is when users visit sites have malware or are suspicious that are nefarious sites, and unbeknownst to them, malware can, just by being on that site, can actually download onto the network or transfer them over to another page where clicking on a link downloads malware. The term that we use it for that is called a drive-by. So compromised credentials can give threat actors access into that network where they download malware. 
The two other very, very prominent ways, vulnerabilities, if we're not keeping our systems up to date, and that can be the operating system, software, applications, a number of different facets of uh, vulnerabilities, hardware and software. If we're not patching and updating our systems, those vulnerabilities can be leveraged, exploited, and accessed to give a threat actor that foothold that they need. And then there are some other capabilities, particularly in the world of the pandemic and this work from home environment that we're in, that really open that door. Remote desktop protocol, RDP, for all of us working in that remote environment, if we've ever needed to have some technical support, when your technical team is uh, asking questions and trying to help you to work through whatever the problem is you're experiencing, they have the potential and there is software both built in and added to systems so they can take control of your network. That software has to be patched, it has to be secured, and if it's not, when there are vulnerabilities in those uh, different types of remote software applications, they can be leveraged to put software onto a network, ransomware onto a network. Compromised credentials, uh, whether or not your username and password is easy to guess, um, username and password is compromised from some other site or reusing of credentials from multiple accounts. If those credentials are exposed or if bad guys find them, those can be used and are frequently used to gain access to a network. Thanks, Ron. So back in March, 2019, as we stated at the outset, Norwegian renewable energy and aluminum manufacturer Norsk Hydro was victim of a ransomware attack. So unlike many victims of ransomware attacks, Norsk Hydro chose not to acquiesce to the ransom demand. So how were they able to do that? And should this embolden other companies to refuse to pay? One great fact about this is that it was the CEO's first day on the job. And so she gets a, a wake-up call at four in the morning and what a way to start your first day. You know, I think there were a few things that were in favor of Norris Hydro that allowed them to do this. One was, I think pretty importantly, they had infrastructure in place to respond to crises. And so the executive team was able to get together in the first few hours of this and make some important decisions. One, they weren't going to pay. Two, they were going to bring in outside help, particularly from third-party crisis intervention. And then they were going to also enlist the help of the government. And I think third, they were also going to be transparent. That was part of their corporate culture and corporate philosophy. But to get to those decision points, you need to have not only a, a CISO, which they had, you also need a lead for a crisis of this type. They had that person. And so whatever criticisms there might be about their security posture, they had very good corporate decision-making that let them come to these decisions quickly. Once it's made, then they're going to do the best they can kind of going forward. It's important to think too about what this was. So this was a lockup ransomware. So there wasn't data taken in an extortionate demand. It was, you know, we've shut down your operations. Norsk Hydro, I think, is in about 40 different countries. They've got, a, you know, dozens of manufacturing plants for their products. Everything shut down or a good chunk of it shut down. The decision they made early on not to pay, the rest of it then is sort of cast directly. They decide to go public, they bring in outside help, and they set a plan in motion. They decided to shut everything down. They shut all the servers down so that no additional harm could be done. They begin their investigation, and then they begin a manual operation. It's that initial, I think, decision-making. They get to that decision quickly. What we see in our practice is a good determinant of outcomes is you know, who's going to make decisions? How quickly can you get there? Because every hour here delayed 
every hour in terms of reporting to law enforcement, every hour in terms of getting outside help in, every hour making a pay, don't pay decision is going to have ramifications for how well you'll put it together in terms of the quality of your response. And then in terms of whether this should be seen as a, an example, I think, for others to pay or not to pay, it's a case study that companies should look at as an example of non-payment. I mean, the loss here, as they estimate, it was about $70, $71 million. It's gigantic. We don't know the amount. I don't think of the ransom that was demanded because there was no engagement. At least I don't know it. But it, that 70 to $71 million has to have dwarfed it. So was it the right decision not to pay? It was for them. And it was part of their corporate culture. But every company I think now should think about, first, do you have that kind of decision-making structure in place to get to a decision? Two, is there some part of the policies and procedures you want to etch into your corporate decision-making now so that your hands are essentially bound when a ransomware payment comes up? And then third, if you decide to make a pay or don't pay, do you have tactically, do you have an operations plan to make either of those happen? And I think there's a lot of great lessons that we'll pull out of this particular example that may be able to help companies planning for these events. Well, thanks, Jack. And that really is a great segue to this next part of the conversation. You know, so the decision to refuse to pay a ransom demand isn't something you do lightly. And it's certainly, I think, what made the decision a little easier for Norse Hydro is uh, this isn't the first time that they were thinking about what would happen, right? So, Jack, you alluded to it and touched upon some of it, but Ron, what kind of advanced crisis management and business continuity planning enables an organization to make that call? Jack made two really good points. So culture being one, but planning. Planning is uh, is really important, and it's an excellent question. There, there are a number of different factors that can contribute to establishing that appropriate confidence level that helps the decision-making process in whether to pay that ransom or not pay that ransom. Paying the ransom sometimes seems like it's an easy button in this situation because the uh, the pain, the pressure, that stress can be pretty overwhelming. The way I look at this in, in the response is preparation and planning when practiced is going to yield a high confidence level to respond appropriately and effectively in this type of a situation. People. People are one of the most important things you can do. Having awareness, empowering your team, building that culture of defense so that they have ownership in that accountability in the one team that we're all part of the first line of defense when it comes to our organization. And then adding tools with our people to help them. Phishing filtering tools, email filtering tools. There are ways to use those tools at the individual level to empower our teams, again, in that first line of defense to report those suspicious activities. Another thing when we talk about preparation is process, having good policies and procedures. Jack talked about having a really good team structure that was very versed in how they were going to respond, what they were going to do, what where they wanted to be in context of crisis. And that's critical. Strong policies, enforcing concepts of least privilege from a protection perspective, segmenting your network, Third parties are a critical component when thinking about ransomware, vetting, monitoring, really enhancing our contracts with third parties to make sure that they're doing their best from a security perspective. And then again, process-wise, disabling certain types of activities in your network, whether it's access to certain activities or, or internet access and websites, the ability to click on certain links and things within uh, with an email, being proactive about that is really important. And the last piece I'll touch on when we talk about preparation and prevention 
technology. Thinking in advance and being prepared in advance with your technology. In context of ransomware, one of the most important things that we talk about is our backups. You really can't understand the value of having an effective backup process, having that those backups validated and tested if there's ever a need to ensure, and that's whether or not it's from an incident response perspective, business continuity perspective, but that gives a level of confidence that if there's ever a problem, you know you can restore. Having the right types of preventative measures from a technology perspective, phishing, we talk about phishing and email ex exploitation, multi-factor authentication eliminates a great, great number of the risks, the threats that phishing can present in email, in our end users' email. Applying two-factor authentication will eliminate the vast majority of those threats. Good antivirus, anti-adware, but really some hygiene concepts also are really important in this context to prepare, to have an organization well-prepared. Patching, ensuring vulnerabilities in software uh, applications are patched. Updating, ensuring the newest versions of those operating systems, software and uh, applications are all using the most current versions. These are things that take time. They require planning in advance and coordination across an enterprise, but they yield tremendous results in ensuring that the organization is protected, the network is protected. And again, it demonstrates from the top-down buy-in at the senior level that it's important in all facets of cyber defense are important. So preparation, planning, having, and Jack mentioned this, having that, that culture, but also that planning in advance, having those discussions, having a very uh, a robust incident response plan, not limited to, but within very specific focus, keeping that context of ransomware as part of that plan. With a strong incident response plan, it will empower organizations to make those decisions when they come up and be prepared. So Norse Kydro's manufacturing and power generation processes are highly dependent on the company's computer network, and, that, and yet the network had to be taken down to isolate the virus and prevent it from propagating, which is, you know, it's just astounding regardless of, of having to take that extreme step, they were able to keep power going to their 900,000 utility customers and avoid significant delay to their manufacturing processes. Jack, that was probably no small undertaking. How were they able to do that? I think they did the best they could given the circumstances, but I think they did very well from the public reporting that I've seen on it. This is a company that they generate power. They also make sort of high-end aluminum products. They run these 900-degree aluminum smelters, which are really, really serious technology. They did a couple things. So the point Ron made about incident response is really critical. I think they had a mature incident response policy here that allowed them to put the planners together and make decisions and execute on them. I don't know if their business continuity planning, which is sort of a subset of that, was as mature. When a company thinks about a cybersecurity incident, they typically have a playbook, an incident response playbook. One of the policies that will be referenced in there is a general, you might call it a disaster recovery plan or a business continuity playbook. That playbook isn't just limited to cyber attacks. It also could be fire. What would happen if there was a labor strike? What would happen if the phones just went out unrelated to a cyber incident? And so companies that are in California that have fire risk or companies in Florida that have hurricane risk have this independent policy they have to work on. And so you can see when you're assessing in a postmortem a cyber incident where you have relative strengths. One of the things that happened here was you essentially took a 21st century business and tried to run it like it was a 19th century counting house. They were using printed order forms for aluminum orders. 
they were working double shifts because if you didn't have the labor-saving technology, you had to do the things manually. Again, you had to measure things in temperatures manually as opposed to using a computer to do that. My favorite fact that came out of this was they were going to retired employees and they were finding retired employees who did this in the days of more simple computers and said, okay, come back to work, help us out, which it must have been a pretty fun thing if you're a retired employee. And it's like, you know, once, once back into the breach, come on, let's go make some aluminum. I think they did what they could. And it was pretty extraordinary. Another thing they did, which we see a lot in clients who are facing, who have decided not to pay is they've got to make a series of judgments about which systems are most important. And that might mean, okay, we know that if we're going to make these orders that are high dollar, we're going to prioritize those. So they were able to get the critical stuff up in about three weeks. And then some of the things that they were able to do simply with more work or with retired employees, those got back online more in a 90-day schedule. And to do that, to do that sort of triage, figure out what's important, you need to have skilled and empowered management. And you don't always get that. Again, so I think the takeaway from this is you might have incident response planning, but you also have to think through what is your disaster recovery business continuity plan and who's going to be empowered to make decisions and priorities with the limited resources. So you guys both make excellent points. There are so many benefits to crisis management planning. It's anticipating the unexpected and discussing things and being introspective. What are our capabilities? What are the external capabilities that we need to be able to flip the switch on? And a lot of this translates into just facilitating a timely response. Because if you're first thinking about who should be making these decisions, do we have these capabilities in-house or do we need to go to the outside? Who oh, we don't have contracts with these people. All of these different things are just robbing you of precious time and making your ability to respond in a timely way significantly inhibiting of that. So, you know, I'm advocating for people to sort of be realistic and, you know, appraising their own capabilities to respond to different incidents and then backfill with service providers in case something like this were to happen. And clearly, Norsk Hydro had done some fulsome crisis management planning on the front end. Otherwise, this never would have played out the way that it did. And so often organizations who have not put a lot of forethought into the what ifs, they end up having a really bad experience and they then have a tough time breaking that whack-a-mole pattern of we never had time to write a crisis management plan because we were just putting out fires. So Jack, earlier you were you're talking about the $70 million in expenses that Norsk Hydro incurred in keeping their operations going while their network was offline, and it probably being well in excess of what the ransom demand would have been. So what is the counter argument to that? What is the justification for paying arguably more than you would have had to pay the hacker organization? I wonder if they had known it was going to cost $70 million, <laughs> maybe they would have thought differently on day zero. Maybe they, maybe they would have, right? Nobody ever knows what it costs. If you don't do modeling, and it's hard to do that kind of modeling, you don't really know what it's going to cost you. So it's quite possible if the idea is I'm going to pay a $2 million ransom, let's assume it was $2 million, and I have a 50% chance they're actually going to send me a decryption key and I can get back up. And then there's another 50% chance that they won't come back and re-attack me immediately, which is also a risk, versus taking a known $70 million hit. It's really hard not to pay the ransom. 
I mean, it really is. Because even then you're thinking 50%. Okay. On the worst day, I've lost 2 million. That's probably what I would pay today if someone said for an insurance policy to cover me for the 70 million. So I think you do have a little bit of calculus there that was them facing an unknown. But the good news there is there are companies, and I think they were one of them, that have an ethic of transparency, that see themselves as part of the public good or want to be seen by their sort of state sponsors or by their shareholders or by the public as in it for the public good. And they wanted to say, and this is what they said publicly very early on. I mean, they were holding daily briefings where folks could ask them questions. We don't want this to happen to others. We want to be transparent. And that was a value to them. And it seemed to be a value that had, that worked out for how this worked. Not every company is able to make that sort of decision-making. But you know, the federal government, for the most part, is very strongly discouraging companies from paying. Now, they want to try to cut off ransomware at the demand root of it. But there's also cynical, just purely corporate reasons not to pay. You, know, you don't want to be seen as a payer. For a lot of our clients that have ransomware events, their biggest question is, okay, if we pay, do we have to tell the consumers whose data might have been affected? And now, at least in the United States and in Europe and parts of China and, and in South America, no matter what, a company is going to have to tell the consumers. There are these laws now in place. If data is touched and it's personal data, you're going to have to, within a reasonable amount of time, make notice. That understanding in corporate America has been a sea change in whether to pay or not to pay these ransomware bids. Because once they know on day zero, okay, personal data was affected by this, you're going to have to write a letter to all your customers, all your employees. They say, well, okay, if that's the case, if I have to do it, then screw it. I'm not going to pay the ransom. Because that was the main reason. Keeping it quiet was the main reason they weren't going to pay the ransom. And once that goes away, I think that's one of the arguments that I've seen sway a room of decision makers in terms of avoiding the ransom. On the other end of it, what I've seen that encourages the payment of ransom is when there's a moral hazard, meaning when the company is not going to realize the price of the ransom. So we encourage all companies to talk with brokers about cyber insurance. It gives you that possibility of making a payment and having a third party pick it up. However, it creates these unusual incentives where sometimes companies will say, look, let's just throw 2 million bucks at it. It's not our money. And we'll go ahead and let's see if we can decrypt it. And otherwise, you know, no matter what, we're going to tell our customers, well, let's take a crack at it. It's not our money. So these are all part of the bucket of decisions. And I think it goes to Ron's point earlier that we now have so many case studies that we know a lot of the things that wavered and make informed decision makers. These are all things companies can do right now in peacetime to get themselves an incident response guide. You can have the discussions we're having now at any company anywhere in the country. Oh, really, really good points you make. So this was such a great discussion with Jack Clabby and Ron Yearwood on ransomware that we got too much content for a single episode. So this concludes part one of the episode with Jack and Ron discussing ransomware and strategies to lower your vulnerability to it. If you have an idea for a topic or guest for an upcoming episode of Fraud Eat Strategy, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for part two.